This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to our lovely Spiegel tent. Uh, delighted to see so many of you here on uh, another glorious Edinburgh morning. Um, my name is Rowan Gulliver. I'm the Associate Director for the Book Festival, and I'm delighted to be chairing today's event with Richard Powers and Neil Griffiths. Um, we're going to have a little bit of conversation, a little bit of reading, uh, and then we'll open it to you guys for some questions. Uh, and then afterwards, we'll be signing over in the cafe signing tent where you can have further discussions and buy uh, two of their amazing books. I'll give them a little brief introduction. Neil Griffiths on the... the far left. He is the author of two previous novels, uh, Betrayal in Naples, which was the Authors Club Best First Novel Award, uh, and Saving Caravaggio, which is shortlisted for the Costa Novel of the Year. Um, he is founder of the Republic of Consciousness Prize for Small Presses, uh, which champions the brilliant work that lots of small independent publishers do throughout the year. And for us at the Book Festival, uh, that's a very important prize, an important project. The winner of this year was uh, Ellie Williams, who this, also this year won the James Tate Black Prize, which was awarded here on Saturday. His new novel is As a God Might Be. It took him nine years to write, published by Dodo Inc., uh, and it's a remarkable story of Proctor McCulloch, who is uh, a middle-aged man in a comfortable world, a great job, happy family, but is struck by faith and belief uh, and a calling which inspires him to go to the East Coast and to build a church uh, which has fundamental consequences for him, for his family, uh, and for the group of friends who uh, become part of his, uh, his group and go on to build this uh, amazing church. Richard Powers, um, we're delighted he's here. He's come all the way from America, which we're very, very grateful for him to do. He's the author of 12 novels, including Orfeo, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize, uh, The Echo Maker, Galatea 2.2, and Playing the Dark. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Grant, the National Book Award. Uh, he's been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a four-time NBCC finalist. As a chairperson, I should have looked up what NBCCC stands for, <laughs> but it sounded quite good. Um, and his new novel, The Overstory, has been long-listed for this year's Man Booker Prize. Um, again, it's a, another remarkable novel um, about nine characters who uh, their stories are intertwined and come together as they follow their belief and their desire uh, and their relationship to trees and the natural world. And uh, like Neil's work, makes you look differently at the world around you. As a uh, programmer for the book festival, every year you get to, you kind of think, oh, well, I've, I've read all the novels I want to read. Uh, but then two come along and slightly knock you sideways. Uh, and these are two for me this year. So please welcome Richard and Neil. So uh, Richard drew the short straw to go first. He's going to introduce his work and give you a little reading, followed by Neil. Uh, as Roland said, The Overstory is a book about people and trees. Uh, while I was working on the book, I only worked on mine for five years, so it's just a little bit less than half as good as Neil's. But, um, <laughs> when I would announce to my friends the subject of the book, you know, the eyebrow would go up and they'd say, oh, that sounds interesting, and, and I hope you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so they're... they're, they're 
There is a central core to the book which uh, involves what we in the States call the Timber Wars, uh, which is this period of time in the, in the 90s and right around the turn of the 21st century where otherwise unpolitical, non-active people were drawn up into the attempt to save what amounts to the last 2% of the ancient forests in the States of, of all of the ancient original growth forests on the continent uh, of North America uh, at the time of the European arrival, the estimates are that uh, between 95 and 98% of those are uh, cut, which is a staggering figure. And when I saw that, uh, it seemed to me that there was a drama there that they were still cutting what remained in the very final years of the 90s and 2000s. And it, it, it did seem to me a place to interject some questions about our place here, why it's so difficult for humans to consider the Earth a real home and, and something that didn't need to be made over into something else. So that's the core of the, of the direct uh, interpersonal drama. Uh, I didn't know until uh, just a few minutes ago that we would be reading excerpts, so I had nothing prepared. Uh, when I scrambled to try to decide uh, what to read, I thought, well, you know, if you can't read from page one without establishing something, you've got a problem. So <laughs> I'm going to do that. It, it's, uh, it's about a four or five minute passage. First, there was nothing. Then there was everything. Then, in a park above a western city after dusk, the air is raining messages. A woman sits on the ground, leaning against a pine. Its bark presses hard against her back, as hard as life. Its needles scent the air, and a force hums in the heart of the wood. Her ears tune down to the lowest frequencies. The tree is saying things, in words before words. It says, sun and water are questions endlessly worth answering. It says, a good answer must be reinvented many times from scratch. It says, every piece of earth needs a way to grip it. There are more ways to branch than any cedar pencil will ever find. A thing can travel everywhere just by holding still. The woman does exactly that. Signals rain down around her like seeds. Talk runs far afield tonight. The bends in the alders speak of long-ago disasters. Spikes of pale chinkapin flowers shake down their pollen. Soon, they will turn into spiny fruits. Poplars repeat the wind's gossip. Persimmons and walnuts set out their bribes and rowans their blood-red clusters. Ancient oaks wave prophecies of future weather. The several hundred kinds of hawthorn laugh at the single name they're forced to share. Laurels insist that even death is nothing to lose sleep over. Something in the air's scent commands the woman. Close your eyes and think of willow. The weeping you see will be wrong. Picture an acacia thorn. Nothing in your thought will be sharp enough. What hovers right above you? What floats over your head right now? Now. Trees even farther away join in, all the ways you imagine us. Bewitched mangroves up on stilts, a nutmeg's inverted spade, 
gnarled Baha elephant trunks, the straight-up missile of a saw, are always amputations. Your kind never sees us whole. You miss the half of it and more. There's always as much below ground as above. That's the trouble with people, their root problem. Life, life runs alongside them, unseen, right here, right next, creating the soil, cycling water, trading in nutrients, making weather, building atmosphere, feeding and curing and sheltering more kinds of creatures than people know how to count. A chorus of living wood sings to the woman, if your mind were only a slightly greener thing, we'd drown you in meaning. The pine she leans against says, listen, there's something you need to hear. Thank you. Neil, would you like to? Yeah, um, I should tell you, it, it probably took nine years to write because, um, because I, have a, I have a full-time job and, and uh, not dissimilar from the character in the book. And I have a family uh, with twins uh, who are not dissimilar to the book. And um, much of life, writing for me is very much writing between the cracks of, mm. of, uh, of life. So um, uh, nine years is, is, is a long time, but it probably didn't take me that long. Um, <laughs> What, what, what it's a, I think I started with one thought, which is that if, a, if, a, if an individual, in, in this case a man, suddenly believed he was about to have an authentic encounter with God, what would he do with that thought? Because to express it to his family or his friends would, even those who would believe or, or not believe, would necessarily... I think, and I tested this out, um, people come back and say, well, that's what you think, or mm. it's about something else. Um, uh, you know, what's happened recently that this may be some kind of explanation for. And the, 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 the thing that I was always interested in is, is, the, is the, the word authentic. You know, what if someone feels they have had, let's say, an authentic... How is it expressed? How is it talked about? And actually, you get to a place where, where language either just stops and you just go, all I can say it is it's the case, and everyone will go, of course you think it's the case, and we don't. <laughs> and so you, you reach this bit of place of tension, and there's a bit in the middle. Or um, you do, maybe in a sense what I did do, is you... And, and lots of theologians and, and writers have done through, throughout history, is you just start writing. And, and you try and kind mm. of throw the language up in the air to see whether, in between the cracks of language, you might be able to suggest there is a possibility that someone could have had an authentic encounter with God. Um, and so it was a... So in the sense, obviously, it would be pointless writing. As it says in the... Um, in the novel, silence persuades no one, um, and therefore you have to start throwing the words out and seeing whether that can tell us something about where language fails, but maybe um, God is present if you believe. And, and, and I would say the book probably errs on the side of, of uh, McCulloch's authentic um, experience with God, but it's not, it's, it's not, a, it's not a book that... Um, 
necessarily says, you know, that, that I believe or the character believe in gods exists. It exists, but it, it's trying to find a place where that might be a possibility. Um, if that made any sense, um, um, uh, whatever. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do the same as Richard. I'm going to uh, um, uh, read a bit. I, I was unprepared. I didn't even bring a copy of my book with me. Um, so so um, uh, Roland uh, thankfully got one. So I'm going to um, read uh, probably slightly less well than Richard. Um, but, um, and it's about a page and a, a, a half uh, from the very beginning. Um, it starts... Um, uh, very pretentiously, with a, a, a quote from Pascal, um, which, I'll, which I'll read to you. Uh, you must wager, it's not it optional, you are embarked. He built a house and next to it a church. He had never worked with his hands before, and new skills were needed. A great arc of learning, distribution of load, local geology, the ebb and flow of team morale. Within days, his intention to build alone by an act of will, had become a shared enterprise, a job of work. There were no miracles. It would cost lives. By the end of summer, little of the original vision remained, yet the buildings were up, a patchwork of accidents, others' persuasions, the inspiration of materials. To look from the ridge, down the slope of rough grass, and against the blue backdrop of a mannerist sky was to see an artwork, a home and church as, uh, as utterance of something beyond themselves. This was never his intention. His vision had been of a modest house for his family and a place of gathering for a small imagined congregation. Yet it had become something with which others identified and declared representative of something they could not explain. He chose the spot by instinct, his car abandoned on the side of the road. Striding across fields, he wondered whether only the sea would stop him, But then, a thousand paces before the cliff's edge, he reared up and his body became stiff, a new alertness within him. Right here, he said, and with his arms extended to their widest, turned on the spot, creating, or so it seemed, a central fugal force that gathered in the landscape, the give of the ground, the blue of the sky, the fall of the waves on the beach, and finally, on his lips, the minerality of the air. Back in London, He claimed the moisture on the breeze tasted like fino sherry. He ran with a clever set and was kindly and not so kindly mocked. On the second day, he marked out his plot and squared it off with small piles of stones. The distance from the back door of the house to the west door of the church was calculated with largest strides, his leg raised at the marching angle of a tin soldier. And from that moment on, this patch of land was to remain wild and tussocky, any wearing away to be the work of ministering footfalls, the hurrying over the rough and ancient land connecting him to primal dreads. At night, he envisaged only lighted windows to show him the way, and if the buildings were dark, the moon and starlight were to be enough. He remembered a darkness from childhood, like heavy fabric around him, and walking with his hand before him as if searching for a parting in a curtain. Separating the two buildings was the west wind. During days of storm, walking from house to church felt precarious, as if close by the world had a sheer edge, as it did. Sometimes he was blown onto one leg, like a tightrope walker trying to regain his balance. A deep cleft in the cliff funneled wind into an arrow, its point tipped with a sharp coldness from the deep sea. 
At its strongest, it carried the final crash of the waves on the shore and the close clacking of large pebbles, a heavy, menacing sound. There was also a higher note, and with its echo so impossible on the featureless land, a desperate music was created, or a last and missed warning. Yet when he tried to listen in, nothing was discernible. By that point, he feared they had all been right. He was afflicted. Thank you very much. Two very good readings. Um, there's, there's so much in, in both your novels that, uh, as, as chairperson, I'm also not, almost not quite sure where to start, but I think um, <clears throat> with you, Richard, the, the structure, if we talk a bit first about the structure of both your novels, in terms of yours, you begin almost with a collection of uh, eight short stories right. of different right. characters, right. Um, which is the root, right. as you call it. Um, why, why, did those, why did those eight characters, or where did those eight characters come from, in fact? Why did you want to make such a kind of ensemble cast at the beginning of the right. book? Well, let me, let me say first that I love this pairing. I, I, I've read Neil's book and was very moved by it. Uh, and at face value, it's not immediately clear what they have to say to each other or what the... What the con- I mean, aside from being long, strange, and filled with philosophy... Uh, um, <laughs> But I think there's, there are a couple of other common denominators, and one is this, this sense that our story is bigger than it seems, mm. and this desire to, to open up literary fiction from the domestic and from the merely personal into larger dramas, dramas beyond the, the local. Um, so I, I, do love, I do love having that kinship in common. And maybe also this sense, you know, the, I remember my uh, grade school teacher saying uh, there are three ways of, of building conflict in literature, you know. Uh, at the time, we used very sexist language, so it was man against himself, which would be the psychological conflict, man against man, which would be the social conflict, and man against the elements, which would be <laughs> that which goes beyond the human. And I think both of these books try to push out into that third mm, level. Mm. I mean, for, for so long, I think that, that third kind of drama has, has been morbid. We've thought, mm. well, we won that war. Either God is dead or the environment is dead, and we're here by ourselves, and then <laughs> mm. we're the only game in town. Mm-hmm. But I think both of these books uh, want to say not so fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in fact, by by winning either of those particular wars against whatever goes beyond us, we've actually lost. And, and we have to reconsider what our relationship to the non-us is. Um, so I like having that in common, too. Uh, as for the structure, you know, initially I wrote this book as a straightforward chronological book involving nine protagonists, which is a lot to juggle. And, and I realized after the first couple of drafts that it would be almost impossible to, to remember who's who, uh, you know, and, and to follow it over that time period. Uh, so I had this other idea of, of grouping together and getting all the backstory of one of the protagonists, and then going and getting all the backstory of another of these protagonists, so that the reader at least had the advantage of staying long enough with a singular point of identification, so that by the time the big 
you know, the big flow, the big river of the story was underway, they would have a great sense of who's who and why they were like that. At that point, I stepped back and I said, there's something quite lovely here. If I do th those separate stories as if they were short stories, it's an unconventional approach to the structure of, of large-scale fiction, where you usually have exposition and development and rising action, climax and denouement. If, if instead I made many expositions for all these peoples and people and, and many uh, developments, that I would have the roots of an enormous tree, and that in the second portion of the book, which is called Trunk, these stories would run together, and, and anyone who does last out those first 120 <laughs> pages, which is not everyone, uh, would, would feel that the design is happening on a much larger scale and a much larger time scale mm -hmm then would uh, immediately be uh, apparent from reading any one of these local stories. By the time the trunk uh, reaches its dramatic conclusion and sends these uh, uh, afflicted characters off into their own direction, I now have my crown. And the final section of the book is called Seeds, in which the consequences, the unforeseen consequences of the collective action of these characters who initially thought they were separate, but in fact were deeply connected in a way that was not yet apparent to them, would go out into the world and, uh, and leave behind whatever remnants their, their choices uh, made. And, and Neil, the, the structure for your novel. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, a lot of people have said, essentially, I've written a 19th century novel. Um, <laughs> in, in, and in that way, Richard and I's book couldn't be more different. Um, it's, it's, it sort of starts at, the, starts at the beginning and finishes at the end. It's, it's quite long, uh, it's, 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 its antecedents is, you know, is explicitly Dostoevsky, right. it's very respectful of, uh, of that. So, I, I, you know, I, I, in my, in my, as the founder of my prize, we, we often try to support you know, formally inventive and experimental literature, but I think I just want, I did want to write something that um, was incredibly character focused. It was all about the characters, but it had, um, but the the the, di the dimensions that character, the main character, has to live in. Um, uh, it, it always sits slightly beyond himself, beyond his explanations, beyond his um, his decision making, um, and therefore it's always a, a, a reaching beyond. Um, in terms of the church, I mean, he just. It's 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 never it's never a church. It's always something that he's just trying to reach, to create, to express something that is inexpressible, and so that's. I, I, but but to, in order to achieve that, you it has to come from character. Um, otherwise, it just becomes a you know a, a, a piece of theology or a piece of. Uh, so uh, that's all, in a sense all I cared about was making sure that the characters. Um, uh, were, were, were real enough that you could then almost kind of let them live and think what must, must it be like to be... And I think what the in, one of the intersections between the, with the two novels is, is, and especially this happens, I think, right at the beginning of, of Trunk, is, is the character... And, and a bit earlier, actually, certain characters become very driven. Mm, right. and, they, and they become driven in a sense that um, goes beyond um, the rational. Right. Um, and I think that's when someone is driven beyond the rational, that, that's a really hard, hard argument to make to the rest of the world. Right. And, and when, in the case of, of uh, Proctor, you yeah. know, the, the, the obsession 
mm. isn't visible to the rest of the world. Yes. It's coming from uh, some other yes, yes. realm. Uh, but also in the, in the case, of, and I'm, I can't remember anyone's name in real life, so you're, just with your characters, I'm not <laughs> going to remember that. But the, but, but the, <laughs> the, 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 central, the central the central character who's written her thesis. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, in, in a sense, what's interesting about her is, is, that, is that she is, she's, she's writing kind of from science upwards, but she's, she's intersected with science from yeah. something yeah. much less tangible. <clears throat> yeah. um, and the thing about uh, your novel, which uh, you know, I find fascinating, and I'm sure, I'm sure other people will, is, uh, and we, talk, we have talked about this earlier, is, is that the science was happening as Richard was writing. And that, I think that does tell you something about, there is this belief out in the world that you're either you're either kind of for faith, faith and anti-science, or you're, you know, you're, you're pro-science and you're, you must therefore be a, an agnostic. And I don't think those, that binary setup is particularly helpful. Right. Um, I mean, if you watch on YouTube, you have you know, all these discussions. You have the atheist one side of the yeah. stage, and you have the beliefs all the other yeah. side. And it's kind of symbolic of how far... And, and they argue, and they can't agree. And I think that there is, in both of our books, that that binary thing is just set aside right. so something else can be explored, some kind of interzone between why, why we believe and, and you know, where science is at the moment. Right. I, I, I love how McCullough, you know, he, does, he himself does not want to use irrationality as a yeah. resolution of the, the conflict that these visitations have created in him. Yeah. So you, you're already starting with somebody who's trying to get these two incommensurables into the same vessel. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I, I also, one of, one of my obsessives is even closer, I think, to, to, to your uh, uh, plot engine, uh, mm. the, the, the hard-partying undergraduate. Yes, yeah, yeah, right? I was going to mention uh, her, yes. Right, uh, so, so this is a woman who's, you know, it's going to be miraculous if she can make it through to, to take her degree, but at the, at the 11th hour, uh, in a kind of drug stupor, she manages to electrocute herself and her heart stops beating for over a minute. And when she comes back, she hears voices. Mm. And mm. This, is, this is based on, on, the, the, uh, on a character who I read about in my long research, an obsessional, who ends up convinced that the trees are trying to get him to help mm. save them. Mm. So in a sense, we, mm. we have that, that, yes. that same, you know, something, something from another order of reality is trying to inject yeah. itself into ours. And it, yeah. I mean, for me, because you've, 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 yeah, you've let something go, haven't you? Because for, for me, I, you know, I thought she was dead. Right. And then, right. and the joy I felt. <laughs> uh, but I think that joy... I stole that from the Bible, by the right. way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... But, 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 the, but the reading experience, uh, once, whatever, and I think that, I mean... It, is is the jo the joy because actually she's she's decelerating mm, right. isn't she she's right. decelerating in life to a horrible end right. and then and then she meets that horrible end right. but whatever and then she, then it feels to me that the book hitting trunk accelerates mm -hmm. with her right. um, and with her 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 drive that's beyond herself so it's, right. it's 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 she's being accelerated i think and I think that's partly the same thing that's happened to, 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 to my central character is, is that 
he's got every reason to be completely happy, but actually, I mean, and, and so he's not decelerating, but he's, you know, in his middle-class London home, uh, it's, you know, often, if you can kind of create a kind of stasis, you're in quite a good playing right. place in, right. the, in, in, these, in these days. <clears throat> but actually, he's, 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 if you're driven beyond yourself, um, something accelerates in you, and, yeah. and, uh, and, think, um, and greater things, are, I think, uh, uh, we can create or produce greater acts of, acts of love or acts of creation or um, acts of... Um, I, mean, she, I mean, you know, she's looking, she's looking to save something. Right. As, both as those, is sorry, both, <laughs> both yeah. those... It's quite good to joke this Oh, well, you're here too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to... You know, but both those characters, uh, Olivia, who's the, the driven right. and is the force right. in the right. centre of Trunk, mm. um, she pulls the rest of the characters through, and she, but she's such a subversive element that kind of corporate society, the, the, the mainstream wants to take her down, but all she, all she wants to do is to, you know, is to do something good, right. which is to save some trees. Right. Uh, and in Proctor's case, he is driven through his, uh, his new faith and his spirituality, he brings these people together. Yes, yes. And all, but all he wants to do is to you know, create more kindness, create more love. Mm-hmm. But every, everyone around him is reacting, whether it's his friends who think mm. he's having a you know, midlife crisis mm. and should see her you know, yeah. get some therapy, or the more formal church mm-hmm. who say, well, actually, you're, too, you're a little bit too intense for us. Mm. Once you've worked out how you feel, yeah. come back and we'll get, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, that these, I think... What's fascinating about both is not and also actually quite heartbreaking. Um, you know, in, with you, Richard, I actually had to, about two thirds of the way through, I had to put the book down because I was, you know, I was heartbroken. There's what was happening with the characters. Yeah. They just, you know, they, they were all driven on this joyful quest, um, and you know, the rest uh, of the world does yeah. not validate. Yeah, yeah. And the same. You know, yeah. same, and in, in well, with Proctor, mean, he's on a quest, and that gets. But he does. I, I, mean, I don't. I don't know what Richard thinks about the the seeds element uh, of his book, but I, I, and I don't really know what I think about... These days, I'm not entirely sure what I think about anything. <laughs> I, should, I, should, I should make that really clear, um, which is actually quite a nice place to be. Um, but is that Proctor at one point, um, people basically keep saying... He keeps saying he's not a Christian because he basically thinks that all, <laughs> all expressions of faith have a kind of um, a deep structure... Um, which are all the same. So the idea that you'd call yourself one thing or another is merely just saying, I align myself to this expression, I align myself to this expression. Mm-hmm. Then a kind of Chomskyan terms when he talks about linguistics, that if, if aliens heard all of the, the linguistic noise in this, on this earth, they'd all think we were talking the same language. It would sound exactly the same. And I think if aliens saw how we talked about God, they, they would just go, they're all saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just, you know, at, at the deepest level. And I think he's trying to say at the deep, at the, you know, he's trying to think about at the deepest level. But when he's really challenged and someone just says, look, you're just a, you're just a boring old Christian, go to church, just sign up, you know, be part right. of something. You know, right. don't pretend you can create a religion of your own or a faith of your own. Don't do it on your own. Being part of the, you know, religion or church or faith is being part of something, you know, just... Don't be so egotistical and arrogant. Just join something. Um, and then he, at one point, he says, when he's really confronted, he says, yes, maybe the Christian expression is, is the only thing, as a Western person, um, Anglophone. But then he says, oh, but I can't be, because if anything, I'm a tragic 
Christian, which is right. that he, he thinks it's actually the kind of hope that is slightly embedded in Christian. He doesn't, yeah. in the end, he doesn't. You do what you can, but it's all, it's, it's the, the, the end is tragic. You know, it's interesting. Part of, part of our, the, the common tragedy between two books, and part of what makes the dramatic tension unresolvable is, you know, w- within this framework of dissatisfaction with individual human exceptionalist mm-hmm. commodity culture, is this realization that we don't have, we no longer have a sense of time, that our sense of time has collapsed mm-hmm. to, to the, spe- yes. the specious present. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and when you were talking earlier, I realized that the great, the great challenge for McCullough is that he is suddenly forced to think in long time. Mm, mm, and mm. and, and is, as yeah, are yeah, the, the, yeah. The, those uh, characters in my book who begin to see trees and realize that, you know, the, the, the culminating uh, chapters in the book for, as far as the, the drama with regard to confronting the outside world happens in, in this old-growth redwood forest that is going under the saw. And this, again, is, is drawn directly from real-world events in, in the States, in the Pacific Northwest. So you have these people sitting, you know, uh, uh, two, 200 feet up in the air in a redwood that's almost 2,000 years old. Mm. Right, but could come down tomorrow. So it's that tension yeah, between yeah. the time frame that we're forced to live in, mm. in our mm. everyday reality, mm. what we call the real world, mm. right, and the time frame of nature and God, yeah. which, which we so rarely force ourselves to rejoin. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think that. Uh, I mean, if if the if 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 the world, we live in a short-termist world, right. and so you know, in political and social. Uh, policy, it's very seldom does anyone even need to have a vision anymore, yeah. mm-hmm. because then you know because no n- no policymaker can ever do anything. I think with, 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 that knowing <coughs> that they're going to have to make make an argument, and right. I think actually is, is create a story. I mean, I keep saying this to 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 to, to, to my clients and my other is is that you make the story first. Right. You tell the story because the story is has has time frames that, that as human beings right. we can access yeah. and we can feel deeply. And once people have understood the story, and that's why you know, Richard's book is, is hugely important, once people have, have accessed and accepted the story, then maybe policy <laughs> follows afterwards. Right. Right. And people can kind of go, there's some, I feel some emotional connection to this because of the story. Right. Even if that's on some degree, it's been kind of forgotten. Right. I think they, policy can make a difference, and I think that's why, you know, I mean, you know, lots of people say that's why it is an important book, and 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 policymakers need to read well, it. See, uh, and and here I am, you know, a citizen of a country, watching sixty years of hard-fought yeah. environmental legislation to save millions-year-old mm. ecosystems is being rolled back in a matter of months. Yeah. But you know, to, to again, you know, not to not to labor it, but when when Mac comes home to Holly and she says, "Where have you been? Mm-hmm. Your autistic son has mm. now spent three days, you know, mm. w- wondering where you are," mm-hmm. and he has to say to her, "I'm I've been living on another time frame." Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a tough it's a tough argument to make, and it's gut wrenching to. Yes, to, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's that th- it's that thick thing is 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 it's more normal at home without you now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and that he's, he's also thinking... I mean, the original title for the book was Family of Love, um, which, which, which was a kind of a Protestant sect in the, in the eight, uh, oh. 70s, right? whatever, and, and uh, the pu- publisher and publicist said it's not strong enough. But actually, there are two families of love in the book. There's, there's the family of kind of vagrants that come and help him build the church, and they're as hopeless a building as he is, um, but they're kind of, and they're not drawn to the faith mission at all. They're kind of drawn to a bit of purpose, no. a bit of, you know, a bit of arc in life <laughs> rather than anything else. But, but he's so, yes, he's, you know, the, the domestic is about the here and now. Right. It's about making decisions, you know, with, with the, the twins, you know, who uh, are uh, uh, not dissimilar to my twins, um, um, are, um, you know, they're, they're fighting, they're fighting. You know, it's, it's fraught. They're, ha- they're, you know, they're having to understand or kind of uh, make sense of, you know, their parents. And then, they, then there's this other set of uh, his other family down, uh, down in the southwest on the clifftop mm-hmm. who, are, who are asking him... They are asking him to... S- even though they mock him ceaselessly, they are saying, please give us something bigger to believe right. in. <laughs> um, and he feels fraudulent all the time because how would you do that how you know it, it's mm. it's a it's and that's why i think what's interesting about language i mean ultimately language fails because it, it with because you can't it either becomes spirituality and well-being and kind of new ageism <laughs> or whatever or you you go to a kind of Wittgensteinian place which is you know right. whereof we cannot speak there must remain silent and, and which is actually you know, a pretty wide net yeah right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um and so you just, you do your best to, or he does his best to kind of go, I mean, yet to sort of say, I feel that something has been said to me and it, and it feels slightly bigger. And that's the terrible thing to, tell, <laughs> to say to your family. I, I feel what I've been said actually might be bigger than just my yeah. family. <laughs> Which is something that happens with, um, again, Olivia, who in, in the kind of mm. from the roots to the trunk, and she disappears. And they have the it's a very little bit in the book, but she has the conversations with her parents where she's like, they're worried, sick, right. and they're like, but I'm fine, but I'm just going to go right. off and right. save some trees. Yeah. And that the 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 the, the, yeah, the domestic in your book, Neil, is is brilliant and captures kind of uh, modern family life beautifully. Um, but also with you, with you, Rich, I guess the, the big element, the big character, that right. or characters in the book is is the trees. Every right. char- every in the in the, the short stories at the beginning, every character has a relationship right. to a tree, and the story of the trees and the connection that you know, they're moving out into something right. bigger. Can you talk right. a bit more about? It? You know, uh, in in this attempt to write a book that takes the non-human seriously, Mm. that wants to say, no, we have not yet solved this question of man against Mm. the environment. We don't live here, right? Mm. Uh, My my impulse was to say, well, really, to bring that home, wouldn't it be marvelous to tell a story where the trees were the central protagonists? And for you know, for about two hours, that seemed really brilliant. And then I realized, well, <laughs> there could be some technical challenges there. <laughs> Speaking about the difficulty of convincing a person uh, that that other time frames are actually real. Um, 
But nevertheless, in and among these nine human protagonists, there are also genuine non-human protagonists with agency and with purpose and with narrative. Right, so there, there is the enormous tree mimus that the, that the uh, two of the characters do tree sit in for, mm. for close to a year. Um, there is this uh, uh, chestnut, the Hul chestnut, uh, that's planted by a Norwegian immigrant in 1855 and uh, grows, unfurls, unfolds over the course of generations as his family uh, uh, lays its claim to the, to the uh, Iowa uh, farm where, where the tree was planted. So these, these trees really do assert themselves in a, in a central way in the story, but it's, it's actually the relationship between the human agents and the non-human agents where this drama takes place, where this in, incommensurable story of time frames and goals, uh, tr- genuinely, profoundly different ways of thinking about the destiny of life. Uh, mm. that's, that's where the drama is, between my human and my non-human characters. I mean, I, th- I think for me, the, 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 the central moment in, in the book, in, in, in Rich's book, is, is when, they're, when they're at the top of the tree, right. or, or at the top of the tree, because somehow you are, you, you, they're, they're on a kind of makeshift platform, right. aren't they? And they have to be winched up. Right. Um, and they're trying to save this tree, and there's two of them, and they're sort of in love, aren't they? I mean, the, the mayor... He, he certainly he is. He certainly yeah. is, yeah, he <laughs> certainly is. She's, she's, more, she's more driven <laughs> and focused. And she's living on a different time yeah, frame. Yeah, she's... Uh, but, but, but I think what we have there is, is, is that, in, in, that the world up in the tree right. feels, feels other. Right. To, so we, we're in the, it's, it, you know in a completely natural environment. Right. There is there is no you know there are no there's no electronics. Um, there's no modern world, um, and and but how they how they the life in that in that tree feels as though I mean it kind of basically feels prehistoric, doesn't it? It's, primordial. It's, it's, yeah. Primordial. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's the moment I think. Um, you know, as, as the reading experience, you suddenly, I, I certainly felt deeply moved and really angry. Um, and I think that's probably a good reaction to be moved and angry at the same time. Lovely, yeah. Yeah, because you, because you, 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 you just know the loss. You just, it, the loss, the loss is felt. And it's not, you know, unlike in my book, you know, it's kind of metaphysical loss. This is a physical loss. That's going to have an impact on our, on you know, what, let's say our, our kind of capacity to think about the world. Right. Um, well, the, pa- the the pain in yours is almost complementary. What damage is he willing to inflict and sustain mm-hmm. in the human-driven world yeah. in order to yeah. r- remain authentic, present to the authentic experience? Yeah. It's not commensurable. Yeah. Well, just a quick aside on this. It. it uh, I was driven to set this scene up at the top of a, of a nearly 300-foot-tall redwood uh, because of uh, extraordinary recent research. I mean, up until very, very recently, and this is germane, I think, to this conversation, prevailing wisdom was there's nothing up there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a redwood monocrop desert, right? Mm. And until... One person named Steve Stillard in, in, in the Northwest said, I'm going to have a look. And his, 
you know, he was in graduate school, and his advisor said, don't waste your time. And he went up there, and there is a, an entire ecosystem up there. I mean, there are, lar there, there are uh, uh, salamanders that live their lives in small pools of water, you know, a football pitch above the earth, right? <laughs> how did they get up there, right? And, and how was, uh, they're, they're generating, generation after generation, in a world that was unseen and unknown. In it, in not to push it too far, but that leap to say, well, there, mm. there, there is energy and life mm. and desperation mm. and drama and meaning mm. in a place that we thought was empty, in a place that was invisible to us, mm. right? Mm. I, you know, the, the, my story concerns nine, nine people who are unblinded, in a way, uh, to the, the, the real world behind the real world, mm, right? Mm. Um, this, this smaller act of looking where there was supposedly nothing and seeing everything, that's, you know, to me, that's mm. the prevailing drama of this book. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm conscious of uh, the, our time, not the bigger time <laughs> right, moving <yeah>. forward. <laughs> um, and to open up the floor. We don't have all millennium. Uh, there is a roving mic, if you like. There's a gentleman there at the back. We could move into, into the time of trees and just be here all day. You mentioned the, um, the current American administration's rolling back of I'm environmental sorry to protections. Have done that. Yes. <laughs> I'm, aware, I'm aware that the, the American government keeps a database of terrorist activity. Yeah. And the yeah. majority, the, the major, the vast majority of acts of terrorism that yeah. they classify are eco-terrorism. Did you see, by the way, sorry to interrupt the question, but... Our Secretary of State just claimed last week that the wildfires in California are, are basically the result of eco-terrorist yeah. interventions. Yeah. So, so why is the state terrified of people sitting up trees? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the real question to me right now in my country is why is the state terrified of the living world? Right. My belief, I mean, the ostensible motive for rolling back all these protections, I mean, they want to go after the Clean Air Act, right? They have reduced national monuments in the case of, you know, the, the Bears Ears, they, they've reduced national monuments by 85%, opening them up to extraction, to drilling, to logging. The reason given is always economic. Environmental laws have prevented us from realizing our destiny, which is the creation of additional wealth. I, you know, I, I quarrel with their definition of wealth, but in reality, that is not what's happening. Because I, I happen to live half a mile from the largest terrestrial national park in the United States. It brings in a billion dollars a year to that region. It's visited by 14 million people a year, and there's no admission to that park. Right? So there is such a hunger now, there is such a hunger to know where we live, to, to, to see the world before it's gone, that they could create far more wealth from using that as the resource than by going back to coal, which, I mean, it's insane to begin with. But what's really happening is the extension of what George Lakoff at Berkeley calls strict paternalism. This is simply a man and a lot of similar feeling men who believe that 
there was a natural hierarchy to the world with white men at the top and white women underneath. You know, but you know that you know men above women, uh, whites above other races, Americans above all other countries, and humans above every other living thing. He's simply saying. We don't, ideologically, we don't want to think that we owe anything <laughs> to the rest of the living world. At one point in my book, um, the, the tree scientist is giving a lecture, and she starts talking about Noah's Ark, and she says, think about it. You know, here he is, he's given this command to build this ark and save all the living animals. He says, he's missing something here. Right? He's going to take all the freeloaders and leave all the primary <laughs> producers behind. Right? Well, this is, what, this is what Trump and company are doing. They're basically saying the only game in town is people, and everything else is resource for people. Right? Real or imaginary, the economic gains, I mean, the, the, these actions are being taken strictly to say who's in charge. And you know, m my story is a story uh, about the possibility of thinking of things in a different way. There's a, there is a great quote in the book. Uh, where you talk about the fact that nature won't offer humanity what it wants, which is convenience. Right. And you say ease is the disease, yeah. and that once you've ordered a novel in your pyjamas, there's no turning back. <laughs> <laughs> buy them from the bookshops here. Guilty as charged. Uh, there's a lady here with a question. Uh, um, I just want to say my field professionally was eco-psychology, and to read a novel which really addresses these issues and understands them in such a deep way has been a very powerful experience. I have many questions. <laughs> I'll stick to one, which is really about, you've touched upon it, that difficulty of the intersection between the human time frame and then everything that is other than human and actually lives so much longer. And I wondered how much technical difficulty that gave you as a writer, uh, as a novelist, in, in finding a way of ending this yes. extraordinary yeah. book. Yeah. Enormous difficulty, and I'm not sure I, I, I solved the problem. But what, what I would like to think is, having put this out, that, that it's a, it, 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 pre it presents a challenge to other literary fiction writers to start to bring into other works that would otherwise not even address everything that's happening behind the stage to allow the stage to be there. Um, so uh, maybe finally the, 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 the challenge of of resolving a narrative, actually having closure in the way that we need when we, when we hear stories. Maybe that challenge isn't entirely solvable, but it may be unsolvable in lots of interesting ways. Uh, and, and, you know, I've, I hope I've put forward one. Uh, Neil, in, in the sense of uh, the writing a novel that's exploring faith mm. and that kind of going against, you know, the probably the, the kind of the literary tide. Yes. Do, do, you, do you feel that that's kind of that's a beginning of something or just a, a brief blip? Well, I mean, I think I don't know what I said at the beginning. I mean, no one would publish this novel. So, right. <laughs> so, so it's not as though, um, you know, I, I yeah, I mean, I, my agent wouldn't even represent it. So, um, wow. so, it, <laughs> so I, 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 I imagine it would be, uh, I mean, I would, I would write trying to find another agent. I would write to an agent and say, agents, you know, and say, you know, I've had some modest success in, before I've written this book. It's, I'm going to be really straightforward. It's a 600-page philosophical, um, theological novel. Um, and they just wouldn't even <laughs> respond back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I mean, I, I, I thought I had to be honest. I wasn't going to pretend that it was, it was something else. But so I, 
I don't think that, and I think it's especially the case in the UK, actually. I think, I think mm. uh, American uh, fiction mm. is, is slightly more abundant. Or, or, um, no, I, 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 I mean, I was saying, I think, I, earlier, I, I think if, if, if Richard was starting out now, in the U, I mean, the lots of starting out yeah. now in the UK with this with this book, it would be a tough sell yeah. for 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 the, for the you know the mainstream publishers, because I I think people want quite local, quite tidy mm. um, stories th- that th- look th- like thirty us. something yeah. stories right. about relationships, yeah. um, uh, and so and th- there is an argument that literary fiction has always done that to a certain degree and then some some people have you know uh, you know melville dostoevsky. Um, and dostoevsky mm-hmm. um uh, whatever have have just have actually always been the outliers yeah. in literary fiction and and being an outlier in literary fiction now is is the opportunities are narrow and narrow and narrow so narrow and narrow and narrow so I, my my sense is is that one has to go out now and look for uh fiction that's doing something that is asking you know questions beyond ourselves mm-hmm. mm. but as well as being a novel uh, you know you define it as being a theological novel it's also a novel about uh society about london about work oh, yeah. about re- it, the, all, both your novels are about relationships and about yeah. love yeah. and um you know the sacrifices that people do for the, their loved ones yeah. um and so there is just you know there is the domestic there is the, the kind of human connections and battles there's just on top of that, mm. which what makes it so, the the battle against the other and the bigger, mm-hmm. you know, making humans with a small H rather than a capital H, right. I think. There was right. a gentleman here with a question. Yes, a, a comment and a question, really. For Richard, I haven't read your book, Neil, but I'm about to go, go and buy it. It's oh, brilliant. Very excellent. It's very it. <laughs> um, uh, the comment is really about science. I, I've been struck by all of your novels, how, and most of your novels, how the science is made into something very right. uh, almost religious, actually. It's almost, mm-hmm. it's, almost um, it's, it's not. Um, fixed in a sort of cause and effect kind of right. way, and I love the idea that science is more about what we don't know than, than we do know, and right. I think that's contained within this. Right. But I was—it's it, quite a pessimistic novel in the way. I can't, at the end of it, I found myself thinking, "Oh God!" But um, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> that's what you but, uh, <laughs> but I was also the, the optimism is in the virtual reality guy, and that seems to me almost counterintuitive in the book because there is an optimism. Right in this right. programmer who's cr- who starts to create a world and then right. the world starts to he starts to think maybe the world could be made different which would right. almost imply that the world we're in could be made different i wonder if you could tell sure. me a little bit about what your sure. thoughts were around that so the question of of hope comes up again and again both in people who have read the book and who are about to read the book i mean i often get is this just going to uh, uh, worsen my sense that we're completely hosed, or, or you know, uh, will it give me a little something? I, I'd like to believe that it doesn't foreclose hope, and I know that there are readers who have read the ending and felt hopefulness, not just, not just in this notion of. Uh, what what our uh, descendants m- may be able to our prosthetic descendants may be able to to, to help us do, um, but the the artist's vision it seems to me is a persistent one. Even the the fellow who decides to to to, to serve out his 
his excessively long sentence as an eco-terrorist without making a defense seems to me to be an act of defiance and an act of um, uh, preserved uh, hope and determination. So surely there are plenty of ways of reading the ending as one that asserts the possibility of humans entering into a new kind of relationship with the world, a new kind of consciousness. The question of hope always has... Uh, I mean, I, I like that famous Gramsci formulation, um, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Right? I, I, I find that a very satisfying way to go forward in life. But I also think the question, hopeful for what, needs to be asked. Um, hopeful for... Uh, uh, a 200,000-year-old species that's developed only in the last couple of centuries a culture that clearly isn't sustainable, not so much. Uh, hopeful for 400-million-year-old organisms that have already survived uh, multiple mass extinctions, yeah, I'd put my money there. But I also am hopeful that this incredible label, infinitely imaginative and infinitely supple and reformulatable creature called hum human beings, right, will, one way or another, continue to throw itself against the question of how to live here. I mean, we will solve this problem one way or another, right? Um, the question is how much catastrophe in the meantime, right? Uh, it will not look like this on the other end, right? But it isn't too much of, a, of a, a, a metaphysical leap, I think, to say that life went after consciousness. Right? Now it's up, for, up to consciousness to go back and, and accommodate life. You know, as, as Thoreau says, uh, to live in each season as it passes and resign yourself to the influence of the earth. I think we will find a way of doing that. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid we have run out of time, but that feels like a very yeah. beautiful moment yeah. to finish on. Um, it has been a pleasure and a joy uh, to sit here and listen to you both talk. Thanks, um, Roland. I can't yeah. put, define myself as a chairperson, but that was the whole point of bringing <laughs> you both here. Uh, Richard and Neil will be over in the signing tent to sign their books. Please do come and talk to them all. Please do buy their books. They are both uh, just brilliant books. They are just, you know, I, as my job, I have to read a lot of books, but these are, were just a pleasure to discover and to read. So uh, thank you to Dodo Inc. and thank you to Heinemann for publishing them, sticking with these writers. And thank you very much to Richard Powers and Neil Griffiths. Thank you very much. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.